0: This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. For folks that are joining in the room now, we will um, get things going in just a few minutes. Uh, If you're new here, you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club on Clubhouse. And if you tap on the top left where it says decentralized trials on the screen, you can learn more about this club and some of the topics we've covered. We do keep replays on and so past conversations are recorded and available there dating all the way back to December. Um, We also can show there some of the topics that are coming up in upcoming weeks. For example, next Friday, We're going to be talking about patients bringing their own real-world data into decentralized trials and some of the interesting approaches emerging there. Uh, We'll have some topics coming up in uh, the coming weeks that will pull us back towards digital measurements and how to choose different digital endpoints for upcoming studies. I see uh, Alex is here. Alex, hello. Um, uh, this will be my mic check with you. How are you today? Hey, Craig.
1: How are you? Great to be here. Can you all
0: hear me? Absolutely. You passed that check loud and clear. <laughs> Fantastic. And Kelly, good morning, good afternoon. How are you?
2: Happy Friday. Great to be here.
0: Happy Friday for sure. And Amir, good morning to you. How's everyone doing? It's great over here in California. Oh, it's a perfect, uh, wh- what is it, Michelle? It's about 80 degrees sunny and no humidity here in New Jersey today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You wouldn't believe it.
0: <laughs> absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. <laughs> Probably that's true in between the, you know, 50 degree raindrops that are falling. Well, I am looking forward to today's conversation. There's Angela. Let's do a quick mic check with you. Good afternoon, Ange. How are you today?
4: I'm apparently having a hard time getting off of mute, but otherwise I'm great. Nice to talk to everyone today. Mission
0: accomplished. Well, I am really looking forward to today's topic, Amir. This is uh, one that kind of we skirt around quite a bit with different conversations. Um, But before we jump into it, uh, let me just uh, open the room. For those of you that are new, you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club on Clubhouse. We gather here each Friday. 12 to noon eastern time, 9 to 10 Pacific. Here in Tjfdct, DCT, we rotate topics related to decentralized trials and we bring those topics together with friends serving as guests and co-hosts with us. Follow the Decentralized Trials Club by tapping Decentralized Trials on the top left of your screen. You'll find uh, the other couple of hundred folks that uh, are members of that, uh, that are following along, you'll find replays dating back to December of all the different gatherings that we've hosted here, as well as be able to see what topics are coming up in upcoming weeks. For example, next Friday, we'll be gathering here talking about patients connecting and bringing their real world data, their electronic health record data into clinical trials. So keep following along. And as Amir always reminds me, Go ahead and tap not only the uh, lovely profile photos of the folks at the top of your screen who are our guests, co-hosts today, but scroll down and take a look at the other folks in the room here with you today. They're sharing your interest in the topic, um, maybe some other great connections here in the room to make sure you're networking with, um, whether through Clubhouse, LinkedIn, Twitter, or who knows, maybe you'll actually see them in real life one of these days. Amir, any other thoughts as we get things going? No, I think we have a great cast as co-host today. So yeah, let's get going. It's great. Fabulous. Today's topic was really queued up through conversations together with Al- Alex Pastuzak, who is the uh, chief medical officer, chief clinical officer over at Vault Health. And today's topic is going to lean in around enabling choice and flexibility within decentralized trials. How can we move from models that dictate that patient visits will take place in a clinic or maybe they have to take place in a home um, but how can we start to open up the type of choice and flexibility that so many of us have become accustomed to and how we're engaging with um, things in real life whether it's our own health care i have a doctor's appointment on video this afternoon myself or it's how we're engaging with activities as consumers. And so joining us here today, along with Alex, our friends, Michelle um, Shogren from Bayer, Kelly McKee from MediData, and Radcliffe from uh, Bristol Myers, and hopefully if we can uh, get him connected here in terms of uh, technology, uh, Ray Pantieri from uh, Rutgers University. Um, I think for some of the topics on my mind, and I'll be really excited to open this up and start to hear the priorities of the folks in this room, I'm thinking about some of the realities of making choice and flexibility operationally happen. What are the tools that we need? How do we manage um, uh, the different partners and the different solutions that may be needed to create optionality and choice? How do we have to rethink some of our protocol considerations? to make these approaches work. Alex, since you helped to uh, queue up this topic, maybe you can help to kick us off on this topic. If you don't mind coming off mute, introduce yourself. For folks in the room that may not know you, share a little bit about why this topic for today.
1: Yeah, Craig, thank you very much. And and Craig and Amir, thank you for uh, for having me on this and and for starting this discussion, um, which you know seems to be very pertinent to the day and age that we live in in how we uh, innovate in the clinical trial space. So, uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, Craig was right. I am the chief clinical officer and president of clinical care at Vault Health, and um, I've worked hard over the past uh, year or two to build our clinical research muscle really kind of with an emphasis on uh, patient choice and then client uh, choice flexibility and optionality and you know really the impetus behind this discussion came from sort of having a a really pretty good idea of um you know and i'll leave it at that having a good idea of, of how clinical studies are run currently having been and grown up in the academic healthcare space having sort of suffered along with my colleagues um, in the clinical trial space trying to execute on those with limited resources in the clinic despite the desire for the healthcare institutions that i've worked at to do more clinical research and support clinical development and then you know, being on the other side in developing clinical and now clinical research programs to enhance access for patients, whether that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, or just patients who don't typically have the ability to access healthcare services, or frankly, in the clinical research space, um, <clears throat> to be able to visit sites and participate in research. So, you know, really, the the driver behind this conversation today is you know, is how can we expand access to patients for clinical research and enhance what sponsors and CROs and also the boots on the ground executioners or executors of clinical trials can do, you know, in the space outside of physical clinical sites. Um, I'll stop there and pass it back to you folks.
0: Thanks so much, Alex. I appreciate that opening perspective. Man, there's so many uh, notes I'm already dropping in terms of thinking through the the realities of making so much of this work in terms of systems for patients to enable routing and decision-making. How do we manage potential redundancy of different solutions and the costs associated with those? How do we have to think about our protocols differently? Um, Michelle, uh, I know this is a topic you've been thinking about and, and working to deliver against uh, at Bayer. Um, How? What, what are some of the questions that jump to your mind when you're thinking about creating a, a sustainable model for choice and flexibility going forward?
3: I think that we really have to consider that patients need different things at different points of their journey in healthcare. And we might have patients on those different points along our clinical trial all mixed together. So how do we really enable them the ability to choose between if they are having a home health visit, a telemedicine visit, a a site visit, and still not break the bank. Because if we're having to pay for all of those at one time to ensure their flexibility and their choice, that's not really possible either. And it has other side effects that can hurt us on the other side. So one of the things that we're trying to look at is, is there a way to provide that in a structure which would be something more along the lines of when you come into a trial you already have an idea hey i'm the type of person i really would be perfectly fine and would really appreciate those telemedicine visits like you're going to be doing one today craig um and and there are people that like that so when they even consent from the beginning it's almost like they're choosing that's what i prefer for the majority of my visits other people maybe they could consent to saying hey you know i really I'm not at a point where I feel comfortable at all outside of the site. I really wanna have as many onsite visits as possible. Others might say, hey, I'm okay if you need to send someone out to my site, uh, out to my home. And at least we would have some kind of an idea and give them the individualized approach, more of that choose your own adventure kind of clinical trial um, of the future. So we're exploring some of those ideas and concepts. We haven't done it yet, don't get me wrong, but those are some of the things we thought maybe we could at least have a better handle on some of the cost associated associated with it and what percentages we might need in these different
0: areas. So Michelle, you're not looking to necessarily lock the person in. You're just trying to understand almost their persona to better forecast and budget, which types of tools you may need in different right. proportion.
3: Yeah, so then we have an idea this percentage of people in the study are going to need more of the telemedicine visits or this percentage. We're still going to expect to see a lot in our clinical trials to better, plan our money spend and our amount of impact for our our different vendors again this concept level so what we're looking at is a potential to try to give more flexibility because what we've tried so far was okay we're going to do all of this telemedicine and home health business. But if at any time you don't feel comfortable with it, you can come back to the site. And then all of a sudden now we're paying for both because at those moments it's really difficult um, to make adjustments and we might've already you know had to contract for someone to go out to their home.
0: Great perspective, Michelle. And I heard you drop the phrase, uh, choose your own adventure, which is a great segue to over to you, Kelly, because I know you've been thinking about this both in your journey at at MediData as well as when you were on the sponsor side before then. Um, Kelly, what are some of the considerations that jump to your mind in terms of making choice and optionality a reality in how we deliver these studies?
2: Yeah, thanks, Craig. We've both been thinking and talking about this for, geez, forever, it seems, right? Um, A couple things. So uh, I've was on the sponsor side for about 20 years before joining metadata about two years ago. Um, And um, one of the things that I really focused on was incorporating choice into protocols at my last company. And you have to start early and you have to bring everybody along for the ride with you. So at the point that you're discussing bringing Um, therapies from the lab to humans for the first time, that's when you should be starting to think about incorporating choice into your clinical trials. And people may say, whoa, 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 that's too early, but it's not because when you're introducing innovations and we're still at the innovation point for DCTs, like it or not, um, you need to start having these conversations often and early. And when you do that and you're bringing people along with you, then you're all on the same page. I really liked what Michelle was just talking about and understanding patient preference before the trial starts, too. And there are ways to do that by um, engaging patients pre trial, such as through a registry, um, and then asking them for their preferences so that you can get a good idea of uh, your potential patient population um and their their preferences when it comes to DCTs would you want to go to the site for you know one or two visits would you not want to go to the site for any visits um would you rather go to a local lab or have you know a nurse come to your home and those things are really important um not only to understand uh what what people are thinking but actually to have that data that you can then go back to the study team and the um everybody uh, involved in writing uh, the protocols and designing the protocols and say, hey, look, if we design the trial this way, we're going to be able to engage this percentage more people. So I guess my, um, you know, uh, takeaway messages are think about this before you need to, before you even think you need to, bring people along with you um, and uh, involve patients.
0: That's uh, a perfect way to to set up a couple of great action points. Um, And just building on Kelly's share there, you know, when when I think about creating choice and flexibility for our studies, um, one of the concerns I think that jumps to my mind is going to be around our ability to measure. How do we have confidence and the consistency and the integrity of the data if we have patients interacting in different ways over the course of the study it seems to me an opportunity that screams for digital innovation in terms of how we're capturing measurements or is is that your take as well is this a is this going to become a great opportunity for digital measurement to become more mainstream
4: Craig i think it it's a huge opportunity for sure i think it's also an opportunity for us to have a mind shift you know we when we talk about personalization in the way that Michelle and Kelly have talked about it and and you know indexing upfront for what patients need and want um, we start to get ourselves sort of stuck in this conversation around that's great but how do we get to personalization at scale right because those things actually don't go together you know personalization means personalization. I think we need to start to flip the way we're thinking about this and think about sort of systemic personalization. So, what are the um, sort of systemic, you know, beachheads that we could start to look at within our, you know, our companies and within our industry, um, and an anchor to where we know that we have to make some progress so that we can build on that. You know, and, and like Kelly talked about, really doubling down on going you know asking the questions early when you go from the lab and you're about to go right that isn't that absolutely isn't too early because we we talk about how we want to give patients these options but we are not leveraging things like Um, standardizing digital tools and technologies in the way that we could yet. We're not um, still where we need to be from a clinical research as a care option perspective, right? We're not where we need to be from a data standardization perspective. So there's a number of different places, I think, that we could look at where are sort of the systemic barriers to enabling personalization at scale, instead of thinking about it, how do we make that choice happen individually, we're, we're not going far enough back into the sort of root cause things that I think that we could address if we want to set ourselves up for success. And and I think the, the only other thing I would add to, to what the other um, folks have shared today is, you know, last week I was at Patients as Partners, I know some of you were there, and more than one time I heard Patients say, I, I actually don't necessarily want to have a visit at my home or I don't, you know, like the, when I go to the clinic is the only time I get a little me time or it's worth it to make the effort because when I make the effort, it's like the few times I'm able to like get myself mobile right now or, you know, so we have to also just keep reminding ourselves that we can't assume we know what patients want. And I think that's where, you know, Michelle's insight around making sure that we're allowing people to sort of opt into what's best for them early and provide that flexibility is going to be so important. Um, You know, decentralized trials aren't the silver bullet, as you pointed out in a LinkedIn post earlier this week, to diversity in clinical trials, and it's also not a silver bullet to personalization and patient choice, Um, but it's certainly an unlocker to help us get there. So, what can we do systemically to sort of address some of these things to set ourselves up for success?
5: Uh, this is a uh, hey Craig. This is a uh, Ray Panetteri, uh Vice Chancellor for Translational Medicine and Science at Rutgers. So, my apologies, I struggled to get through the threshold, but I'm here. I really <laughs> like what Angela and, and Michelle has said, but but I think um, you know you have to walk before you run. I think the minimal touch decentralized trials are another another arrow in our quiver, but. I think big pharma is going to struggle to embrace this as is the FDA. So again, coming back to the imagery of walking before running, I like the idea of engaging participants in shared decision-making on how they might want to engage in a study. Now that becomes a little more complicated, right? Because you would have to have parallel systems. A minimal touch, decentralized approach, and a bricks and mortar clinical research unit, but it would be really fascinating as a as a bridge over the chasm of clinical trials to do these in parallel, so that patients or participants can choose. It also allows you to validate in the same go uh, the capability of a uh, of the virtual study versus a uh, uh, a, a traditional clinical trial study.
0: Ray, I want to stick with you on this for another for a few minutes because I, I want to make sure that, you know, sometimes we're in our little echo chambers and a lot of our community are saying the same things to one another, but I want to emphasize the Vice Chancellor for Translational Medicine at one of the largest health systems in, uh, in the US, just use the phrase with this audience, that he wants to engage participants and share decision making and how they want to participate and i think ray it's it's probably really warming <laughs> to a lot of people in this room <laughs> to hear somebody like you using words chosen like that in terms of how you want to engage can you share a little bit with this group about the the work that that um or how you're engaging with this type of decentralization in research at Rutgers today. How is this kind of intersecting or where do you wanna see it go within within the institution that you're helping to lead?
5: So uh, yeah, I'd be very pleased to share our experience. I really believe intrinsic to this discussion is using the term participants rather than patients. I get concerned when we use, and, and I'm a practicing pulmonary critical care doc, so I see patients. But, but, but when it comes to clinical trials, we're really seeing participants and not patients. Uh, they are participants with a disease state. It softens the notion of a partnership. So what have we done? Um, you know, I, I'm also the program director for our CTSA hub termed NJX, which is an alliance between Rutgers Princeton and NJIT. In the pandemic, we had to pivot completely. We were, you know, along with Manhattan, leaders in the on the onslaught of COVID cases and we wanted to do aggressive research so our samples that we procured were used for the eua for the saliva test done by rucdr and then infinity biologic so uh the way we uh logistically then implemented it was through vault health and vault health was our partner allowing us to go across the nation in in basically doing millions of studies we completed in collaboration with Vault Health, three interventional studies that were placebo controlled using experimental medications. So they're interventional studies where we never met the the patient face to face never met the patients face to face. We started in New Jersey, but at the time we started actually cases dropped. So we couldn't enroll participants. So what we did by using concentric rings, moving out from the the center of New Jersey, we ultimately fulfilled our patient uh, recruitment through Minneapolis and Dallas where we were the center of the study, the PIs of the study, and the participants came uh, distal, you know, very distantly. And what it did is it reaffirmed our hypothesis that decentralized studies are really the way of the future, not eliminating bricks and mortar, and never gonna eliminate bricks and mortar studies, but to amplify the impact We also found, and and I understand that some people want to take a break and go to the clinical trials office, and most people don't. If they're working at home or they're busy or they have family commitments, it's very hard to take off three hours travel to and from uh, to get to a bricks and mortar CRU, so, you know, I think having the decentralized or minimal touch option really works. Now, where it fails is in the digital divide of some rural areas where smartphones haven't really gotten uh, a lot of lift. So there, there are some struggles, challenges, and energy thresholds that we have to get over before it's, uh, this is for everyone.
0: Just a moment, Ray. I was just clearing something out of the room that was, I think, getting a little distracting in the background there. Ray, one last question while I've got you here. And then, Amir, I want to see what questions are in your mind based on the perspectives we've heard so far. Ray, I would imagine that there are leaders in large health systems that may fear some of the approaches that you just spoken about having such receptivity towards. That some leaders with a lot of infrastructure of health system that they're leading, uh, they want to use their infrastructure. We have hospitals, clinics, practices, um, and that needs to be the future. Um, How would you answer that concern from somebody um, that maybe isn't thinking quite as expansive or progressive as you're describing?
5: <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, those other clinical research units, hospital-based or or unit-based, really depend on sponsors, right? So the sponsors drive the utility of these. If the world changes from the sponsor side, uh, then these other facilities are going to have to uh, have to pivot to address the sponsor's needs. Uh, One of the greatest challenges we have, and I know many of you on the call have, is trying to get uh, highly qualified research coordinators to stay in the position and do the work and to add an ebb and flow depending on the numbers of clinical trials you have. I, I struggle with this all the time. Uh, And I know my colleagues in academic medical centers are having the same problem. So to mitigate that is you could have a nimble workforce that basically are in Carol's uh, or in their homes, that is the uh, employee's home. And doing these calls and uh, and intakes virtually uh, becomes a lot more attractive. To the research coordinators who are qualified to do such activities, and I think, you know, personnel is a struggle for any big clinical research unit, uh, keeping the personnel there, um, and this might be an advantage to decrease headcount, but to improve quality and access.
0: Kelly, I know we're going to lose you in just a moment. Um, are there any other key themes on your mind, either from what you've heard from? And uh Ray or others that have followed you so far today.
2: Oh geez, that's gonna take a lot longer than five minutes, Craig. Um, you know, I think that we all just need to keep keep at it, um, and remember that new medicines and vaccines and devices don't come to market without participation of individuals in clinical research. Um, and I, you know, applaud this this team for not using the S word, the subject word. I know Ray spoke about Patient versus participant, but let's keep at it. Not calling um, participants subjects, um, and you know, just an open invitation for anybody who is looking to incorporate decentralized capabilities into uh, their studies uh, and their programs to reach out. Um, one of the things that we really, you know, need to to continue to do is to help each other. So, open invitation, and and thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks, Kelly. As always, we're going to open up the room in just a few minutes. So if you have questions, ideas on your mind, uh, builds on what you're hearing or questions for any of our guests, make sure you're using the uh, the little hand-raising icon uh, that hopefully is still there on the bottom of your screen. Amir, what are you thinking so far? I got to tell you, I loved hearing Ray's perspective on what sounds like you know rethinking the role of large research sites, to play hub roles as being real hubs when it comes to the future for um, hybrid clinical trials and creating this type of uh, flexibility.
6: Thanks, Craig. You know, um, like Kelly said, there's. I'm sure all of us were thinking lots of things uh, as people were speaking. I, I want to pick up on, and I'll try and channel Jane Ma, So I'm hoping we'll join us in a minute as well. But I'll channel Jane and try and be a bit pragmatic here. So my question would be just to for us to be realistic and not, as you said, just talking an echo chamber. So we're talking about optionality for patients. Uh, One could argue that, historically speaking, uh, clinical trials have been kind of the opposite of optionality, right? We've really had very strict protocol. Give people optionality, not just participants, but sites and others. So my question is, let's say we go down this optionality route, which we should. What does that mean, practically speaking? So, what I mean by that is, for instance, we have several uh, groups from, uh, you know, investigator sites I see in the audience. Does that mean that if I want to give patients optionality that they can decide on the day of their visit that they want to do the virtual visit and so coming in? What does that mean in terms of payment for sites? You know, do they? get paid for the fact they're prepared to see the patient, but the patient chooses not to come in. What does that mean practically for us? So I think as we try and implement this, uh, I would like to always think about what what are the consequences and are we prepared for that? So that's why I'll throw out there just to be provocative for a minute.
0: Well, I think that's a great setup, right? Uh, There are some real practical considerations, whether it's what are the interfaces that patients are supposed to use in terms of um, choosing different solutions. How do we manage scheduling of different partners? If it's going to be a home visit, no wait. I want to do that over the video, no wait. I want to come into the clinic. We don't have true calendaring infrastructure across these different players, straight through to compensation um, and making sure we're keeping people whole without without uh, flaming the budgets of, uh, of study teams. Um, We're going to open up more broadly and reset the room in a minute, but um, Jane, I don't know if you have some perspective on what Amir was doing or if you just want to give him props for channeling you properly.
7: Okay. Thanks, Amir. And I really do appreciate being the pragmatic innovator. I was going down that line um, in a slightly different direction and I'll get there in a sec. First I want to share a lesson learned and Craig, you helped me think about this with a former team. I support entirely what Michelle, Angela and Alexander have put out there, like we need to really design our trials so that patients can choose their preference. And we also need to make sure that we don't make them choose too early. So. Craig, I think your example that put the light bulb on for me was, do you really want your Amazon shopping cart to reload automatically every three months, which is sort of what would happen if you programmed your trial to make sure that there was a home visit every three months. Now, the other part there that was a big lesson learned is when you are putting that optionality into your trial, which I've done a bunch of times now, you'd better be really clear with all the parts of your supply chain, how early they need to be notified if there is a change in preference that can happen for all sorts of reasons, changes in disease status, changes in personal situation. But when does your lab supplier need to know? When does your mobile nursing company need to know? And to your point, is there a way for that to become visible in the CTMS in the site scheduling system? I would ask a lot of questions. Then I'm going to get over to the pragmatic side on a different angle here. And that's in the protocol writing stakeholder group. And I'm looking for advice and solutions because in my experience, the optionality question was most difficult for my statisticians to manage because they weren't Um, Let's just say to add on to what Kelly was saying, I needed a lot of time to work with them to think through and model how different data modalities might change any of the statistical boundaries or what validation, that's a bad word, what evidence they needed to show it wouldn't. So maybe others have suggestions on that.
0: Well, let's do a quick reset of the room and let's uh, continue down that thread because getting protocols designed right, I think are gonna be, uh, if, if we can do a better job when we're looking at our schedule of activities and designing a protocol and can identify that there are certain elements in that protocol that maybe could be shifted to visit two without being meaningfully disruptive instead of happening on visit three, and if done, could create more choice for participants, I mean, these are the kinds of decisions that need to be made up front during that design stage. But let's do a quick reset. It's the bottom of the hour-ish, and you have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. We gather here on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern, to talk about different topics related to decentralized trials. We call it TGIF DCT. and today's topic, is around creating choice and optionality in how patients can engage in these clinical research studies. What are some of the practical opportunities for making this a reality? Or what are the key gaps that we have to address together? And we have a fabulous group in this room of people that are spanning technology, uh, people that are spanning pharma, um, uh, large research institutions, and beyond. So. This is the time when we're gonna keep the room a little more open. If you have a question or perspective that you'd like to lend, uh, go ahead and use that hand raising icon. We'll pull you up on the stage. If you're new to Clubhouse, we're gonna keep you on mute until it's it's your opportunity to speak just to minimize background noise. So if you're struggling to figure that part out, it's the little microphone button that'll appear in the lower right. Alex, I know you um, were key to kicking off this topic with us. As, as you've heard from um, so many others in the room, Michelle, Kelly, Angela, Ray, Jane, and others, uh, what are some of the questions that are jumping on your mind uh, in terms of priorities here?
1: So, so, Craig, you know, I'm I'm really glad you asked me that because I was just about to jump in and ask, you know, I think from the standpoint of, you know, the sponsors, CROs, and, and even, you know, Ray, partners like Academics, you know, what are some of the maybe I won't say challenges, but what are some of the biggest hesitations in hybridizing or decentralizing clinical trials? I mean, we heard the hesitation around, you know, data integrity and, you know, perhaps the size of a trial relative to flexibility and optionality, but what are some of the other big, low-hanging fruit that may still be huge challenges to address?
0: Michelle, you've been in the trenches trying to to move study teams along with these approaches. What are you sensing are some of those, those big challenges that still stand in people's way of embracing some of these new uh, uh, opportunities?
3: I think we have still um, a fundamental mistrust of anything that is gonna be internet related. So when we have device-enabled trials that have to send data and information. We go back to our experience with ePros, and I'm so sad that we're still talking about this. However long later, and you know the stories that we have of coordinators going to their back parking lots trying to get the the ePros to send in um, because they don't have the good quality internet connections or things like that. So we, even though these things are getting better and have gotten better, we still have in our brain what's happened before. So one of the things that the study teams say to me first off is like, wait a minute, we you want to put more devices in our studies and we can't even get EPRO right yet. Then the other, the second thing is we're turning people who are medically, you know, proficient and are dealing with people's lives into now you know, these tech people that have to be able to troubleshoot with patients, you know, um, in front of them uh, at the sites and things like that. And there's concern over how much burden are we putting on our sites and our investigators to take on something new that they didn't really sign up for when they got into this job to begin with and how can we really support them?
4: Craig, I'll just add risk tolerance in pharma is really the biggest barrier, right? I mean, we, we just have such a risk risk mindset, you know, risk management mindset across all levels. That, you know, I know many of you who um, work with pharma hear regularly, oh, I'd love to do that, just not on my study. Right. And I, we, you know, we've heard that over and over again. And I think um, we have to continue to address the risk tolerance mindset and help people understand the types of risks we're introducing and what the trade-offs are. I think that's really low-hanging fruit. Um, because that's something that we can all impact from our own individual seats.
0: You know, uh I couldn't agree more. I also think though that the risk tolerance, risk fear, risk mitigation mindset may actually be an opportunity in today's world because it was COVID-19 the last two years. I don't know if it's COVID-24. I don't know if it's war in Eastern Europe. I don't know if it's fires, murder hornets or whatever else it might be, but I can tell you there's probably something that's going to stand in the way of your patients being able to get to a research site over the duration of your trial uh, that's running around the world, and so, and do you think some of these approaches are starting to be viewed as risk mitigation strategies rather than sources of risk?
4: A hundred percent, and I and I think that you're right. That is the opportunity for us is to realize that we've been comfortable in a lot of ways, and now we're we're having to look at things. In, in ways that we probably knew we should have a long time ago, but we had no reason to, or we didn't think we had a reason to. Of course, those of us who have been fighting sort of in the patient engagement space for years and, and fighting for participant choice and participant engagement and health literacy and all these sort of important things, we've all known we needed to do things differently. But when the system does not see um a reason to move it's very hard to turn that ship so i think you're right we have such a good opportunity here to take the the new risks that have emerged from murder hornets and beyond love that craig um and and use that as an impetus to push our organizations to think
7: differently
0: i want to make sure can oh-
7: i give a shout out to um, sorry craig um following on to that it's interesting to me that some of the folks who are newer to clinical research as sponsors are way receptive to this. And it might be because they're rejecting what used to be, or it might be because they're not coming in with that frame of reference.
0: I want to get to Rob, Sophie and Archana. But before I do, Ray, I saw you came off of mute. I didn't know if you had a perspective on this topic around risk.
5: Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks, Craig. Um, I think we have to come from a fundamental basis of of resistance to change. Um, that's where we're at right now. Uh, what I heard is uh, those that are the younger sponsors embrace this, uh, but I'd also use the imagery. Uh, how many of you are on Facebook, and how many of you are on TikTok? And I bet if I that it would really demonstrate where you are sort of in your experience uh, we're still working with many many clinical uh research coordinators that are paper based um you know ecrfs and eirbs are relatively new in the academic uh, medical centers which is sad to say uh but but if we come from the angle that you know, there's a resistance to change. But we need to be dynamic. And we're not doing as well as we could do in embracing participant enrollment, then I think we look for solutions rather than saying, you know, you have to toggle this like an analog on off. Now we're all going to do everything, um, you know, uh, paperless, which is going to be a challenge.
0: Well said. Let's jump over to Rob Wilson. Rob, welcome. Introduce yourself for folks that may not know your latest role and share your question or perspective today.
8: Hey, thanks, Craig. Appreciate uh, appreciate the topic and the discussion. Um, I'm currently working with VivoSense, but prior to that worked with both health mode and, and led strategy and development for Actigraph um, for many years, um, early people in the wearable sensing field of clinical trial. And um, so, uh, both as it relates to, um, the, the, the discussion that I think today is, is hitting the nail basically on the head. Um, you know, you have the pharma industry is, is, has always been very risk averse. And when we talk about decentralized clinical trials or using novel technology um, to help make that happen, you have two main barriers to entry that people have to wrap their heads around. And one of them, to me, at least two, right? Operational challenges of actually doing that in a decentralized fashion. And my perspective is from looking at novel digital endpoints that could be developed with measurement tools or devices or sensors that could be done remotely. And then you have the risk aversion to the interpretation of that novel uh, measurement in, in the field. And these are two things that, that you know, kind of are pushbacks for people that want to look at tools and digital endpoints in a novel way. And the earlier comment, I think, is the, is the most accurate is that in many of the trials that I was involved with at, at these companies, it wasn't early enough. It wasn't at the protocol development stage where you could actually help people understand both the operational and the interpretation uh, issues that they might, might address there. And so I think that you know the earlier we can have these discussions and the more open that we can be, um, I think will benefit uh, patients. It's interesting. I saw recently somebody posted, um, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, Think Different campaign, and you know I think one of the great things about uh, uh, the DTRA and, and the group that we have here is that if you think about the pharma industry, yeah, that's kind of think, right? That's the IBM. And then you've got a whole group of people that now are saying, let's think different. Let's think about this differently. And it's not one size fits all, in my opinion. I think you're gonna have to look at agile trials that can be decentralized or centralized. But we need to think about the burden on the patient and understand that the technical execution of remote measurement um, is complex, both operationally and to interpret that and engage people early and, and have that open discussion to try and solve the problem.
0: Thanks so much, Rob. Hey, we've got about 15 minutes left, so I wanna jump over next to Sophie. Sophie, I noticed you're doing a, a, a little uh, microphone round of applause to Jane's comment earlier about maybe folks newer to the industry being much more receptive here. But introduce yourself, share your uh, share your perspective or question today.
9: Hi Craig. thanks for having me. Yes, I was absolutely applauding Jane's comment. Um, how appropriate i've I've just joined an, a young sponsor and I have that experience. I do agree that young sponsors are uh, more um, receptive to uh, decentralized trials and remote, access and changing um, the design, our traditional design of trials. Uh, I'm at uh, Gala Therapeutics right now, just as a young sponsor. I was formerly at Boston Scientific. I think I was here um, a a few weeks ago when Dr. Irfan Khan was here and we were talking about patient experience. I love what Michelle, Angela, and Jane just shared um, just a little while ago. I was listening intently uh, to learn from them. And uh, I have a question for all of you maybe um, about uh, optionality uh, for patients. My question is how do you know what types of options patients want in clinical trials? Have you conducted patient focus groups at the uh, outset of a clinical trial at the early design phase um, in order to influence the design and what kind of responses have you received? I'm just very curious to know. Thanks. I'm Sophie Uncomplete.
0: Well, um, Michelle, I know you've been leading a lot of innovation workshops with teams. Is that including uh, getting active patient input up front when, uh, when this design stage is happening?
3: Yeah, so it's funny. We actually had a couple different focus groups, interview sessions, surveys uh, that went out when we started working on decentralized clinical trials at Bayer uh, with different patient groups that represented patients we were and participants we were trying to help, you know, through this journey in the very beginning of the initiative. And then again, we've worked with them throughout the different studies and things going forward. We are trying to broaden horizons from different people across the organization on when is best and what questions are best you know, to ask and to look into, but definitely looking into the acceptance, the burden aspect, you know, what they're really looking for and what concerns they might have at different places. I personally would love to see them push it even earlier and higher because we're usually already, something's designed by that point and we're just kind of doing a pulse check to see where we might have issues. We need it much sooner um, but we're
0: we're working there, Sophia, I, I think that's a great topic for us to even unpack <laughs> in a future session because I think you're going to find we have, we have a, a, a density of, of teams out there today that are um, engaging with patients during study design and planning. Some have organizational mandates in their companies to do so. We certainly did in my last company. Um, and uh, making sure that that exists across therapeutic areas, that that's not just for rare disease and cancer studies, but I think Michelle brings up, timing is certainly a question, representation. Who are these patients we're gonna be gathering? Are they just coming from the whoever's walking by the corner of 42nd and 2nd today? Are they coming just from the Northeast? Are they truly representative uh, of the disease area? Um, and then, you know, I love the point Michelle brought up earlier as well, the, uh, the input from the specific patients who are, are, are consenting to participate and making sure we understand not just in general patient needs or in my therapeutic area, but these specific human beings that are choosing to participate. Jane, did you have a perspective on this one as well? I saw you coming off mute.
7: Um, yeah, I've done a few different models on this, Sophie, and I'm going to give a shout out to Avoca because they actually have a really good patient engagement toolkit, which includes some templates on some of the sorts of questions you might want to consider asking either at a therapeutic area, generally, or in a trial design setting. So back to the big picture we actually had an opportunity to work through at the disease state level when we were thinking about a couple of different assets to take forward in the portfolio and convene a group of patients I don't know how representative in the room with clinicians to think through which of the assets that we were considering might be more of interest and how might unmet needs be met now that's pretty different than a trial design but it definitely pulled through and then there was another round at trial design so that was really really early that was at clinical development plan and asset decision making timeframe.
0: there we go i was just adding a link actually to the top uh jane shout out to evoca reminded me that city has some great resources on that topic as well, that I was just dropping at the top of the screen here. Unfortunately, when you're doing that on Clubhouse, you can't unmute yourself very easily. Sorry for that lag. Archana, welcome. Introduce yourself for folks that have not met. Share your question or perspective on today's topic.
10: Hi, thank you, Craig, for inviting me um, to share my thoughts. Um, Hello. um, Good morning, everybody from the West Coast here. Uh, My name is Archina Sa, and I uh, lead the Oncology Decentralized and Digital Solutions at Medable. I I love the topic today of patient optionality, and it takes, uh, in my mind, it takes a whole new meaning when it comes to cancer patients. um, Given the significance of the adverse events and the treatment um, modalities that these um, patients are going through, it becomes um, so much more important to be able to give the patients that option um, and the, the implications of that which has this panel on the stage has already touched on. Several of you have touched on this, the desire and the need to make sure that that's kept foremost in mind right from the asset planning stage, as uh, some of you mentioned as well. Uh, When getting the input of the patients uh, right from the beginning when you're planning um, for the asset to go, no, go signal moving ahead, because when the protocol is written, that's when we really need to optimize and design for that patient optionality and we need to think about the downstream impacts both from you know from multiple aspects like uh, it was mentioned the statisticians perspective Um, i would also add to that list um, you know from an operations perspective from the designer perspective who is designing the workflow and the solution What are the complexities and challenges that those bring into, we want to make sure that ultimately the data point that is captured, A, we don't miss that critical data, and B, it is of the highest quality for the ultimate sponsor um, that that the trial is being conducted for. So I think there are some very practical challenges there that come into mind, but I do want to you know, underline and underscore the points made by several of you here, and and just highlight how that optionality becomes even more important when it comes to these cancer patients. And I want to highlight one other thing. You know, if you look at the NCI and FDA guidelines that came, out, and the industry guidelines, um, there was a publication last year in July um, specifically that calls out the use of these, um, the use of e-consent, the, the use of e-pros, telehealth, direct to patient home delivery um, and advocates for more of their use to present that optionality and along with that optionality come an added other much unmet need, which is the diversity of the population we serve, the underserved population. Um, And you have to also think of those challenges and plan for those um, right in the early planning stages. So I I just wanted to uh, lend my voice to underscore some of the thoughts there that um, but above all, the biggest takeaway message is, is really to make sure we are involving and planning early on, when before the protocol is finalized, before uh, the systems are being developed, and this is um, that engagement is happening much early on with all the stakeholders involved.
0: Thank you, Arch. Now, Ray. It looked like uh, you wanted to build on that.
5: Yeah, I, th- that's a great point, and I want to follow up on a colleague's uh, comment. I agree entirely that we should sample the participants to ask their preference. Um, you know, we assume we understand what their preference is, and we were really shocked when uh, we we did a a very large COVID study to enhance testing in vulnerable pipe uh, 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 participant populations uh, in New Jersey. It was an NIH sponsored program, and we had questionnaires. We had some four thousand uh questionnaires and people responded, but we lost almost 30% of the questionnaires being stopped when we got to asking uh, questions about where the residents and where their home was and whether they would want to have testing done uh, with tests sent to their home and then and, and then the responses or, or the results of the test sent to the home. And what we found is that there was an intrinsic mistrust or a sense of loss of privacy uh, when we were using their home as the source. So we were shocked by that because we thought it was a great convenience. We had interpreted what the participants wanted without asking them. So, I really embrace the idea as you go forward with an interventional or observational clinical trial that you actually ask the patients, Would you mind us coming to the home? Because we assume we, that's going to be better, but we're often wrong.
0: Such a great point. And, footnote to that, you know, sometimes you'll start to even see some uh, race ethnic differences in terms of what is culturally expected or comfortable to different stakeholder groups. And so in the interest of diversity, if we're not asking, we may actually be marginalizing rather than enhancing some of the representation we're shooting for. Hey Alex, I'm noticing a vibrant chat going on and it looks like you've been a part of that as we're talking about, it seems in the chat, an interesting theme. I I always feel like burden is like energy. It can be neither created nor destroyed. It just gets shifted around. Is, is that what you're seeing in the chat right now, Alex?
1: Uh, yeah, to an extent. And and really, it's sort of, you know, and, and I really like what I'm seeing in the sense that there's this push-pull between, you know, sites wanting to show, shoulder the burden themselves. And I, I understand that having having been a site and then, you know, the sort of, Perspective from the clinical study staff, meaning like, let's say I'm a clinician or a PI, you know, or, or whoever interacting with a patient, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to be tech support, nor should I ever be put in that position. I mean, that's just silly, and it makes no sense, you know. So, having an understanding of what those burdens could be and offsetting them proactively, I think, is super important. And as we build this ecosystem of you know, hybridized probably more so than fully decentralized trials, then, you know, that, that's something that I think people need to be thinking very hard about.
0: Thanks, Alex. Hey, uh, Noah, welcome. We just have four minutes left, but why don't you help to wrap us up? Share, first off, of course, introduce yourself, do a shout out for your podcast while you're at it, and um, share your uh, question or perspective today.
11: Hey, Noah Goodson, Thread. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about designing trials, and I just want to really highlight what, what Ray had pointed out before about listening to patients because uh, uh, the, not as way of a pitch, but as a way of a, a point, we've been doing some really cool stuff with patient listening and getting patient voices and going out and finding a lookalike population to a study and then showing them a protocol or showing them a schedule of assessments or showing them an informed consent before it's finalized and saying, Hey, you could actually qualify for the study. What do you think about it? And then hearing their voices give feedback on it is, is exactly what Ray said. Super compelling. And at times, totally not what you think, right? So at times it's like, yes, I love that I could do this at home. And other times it's like, actually, you know, I would rather have this connection with my clinician. And so getting that feedback and implementing that into the in the design phase and and putting mechanisms in place for for all of us out here putting a practical mechanism in place to do that affordably for sponsors i think it's just it. just i'm i just want to like really double down and say it's it definitely impacts uh those of us who are trying to really design these protocols
0: seconded (laughs) well said hey amir any closing thoughts for the group today we have got about uh two minutes there
6: so I think first of all, uh, thank you to all our speakers,
0: obviously, we, had a, we could have had this for
6: a whole day, right, so we always stick to our time, really appreciate the active chat as well, I know many others have been messaging me on the site, so I always love it when I can keep my mouth shut and just listen and learn, so that's fantastic, we have plenty to talk about, and uh, I think, you know, this is a topic we definitely need to revisit often, right Craig?
0: Absolutely. I mean, what a great discussion today. I'm so grateful to Alex uh, over at Vault for helping to queue up this topic, bringing in Ray Pantieri from uh, Rutgers. Fabulous insights from, uh, from a leader in a large institution. And of course our friends, Michelle Shogren from Bear, and from Bristol Myers, Kelly, who had to step off from Medidata, and fabulous voices that came up and joined us on stage. Always great to have Jane and Rob, Sophie, Archana and Noah. Great to see you here. We will be back next week talking about, uh, some new collaborations that are helping to enable patients to bring their health data into uh, clinical trials in general and the impact of that and decentralized in particular. Mark your calendars, save your lunchtime for us next week, and we'll be back here next Friday. Thank you again for joining us today. Stay well, everybody.